Kagoshima is surreal because there's this, there's, you know, Sakurajima is the island that you can see from pretty much everywhere in Kagoshima. And it's got a, a smoking volcano on it. It's, it's, they're smoking. It's like you wake up and it's like oh, throughout the day, the smoke is changing more or less smoke. I mean, it's just wild. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Tokyo-based writer Craig Mod is part journalist, part ethnographer, and part performance artist. And I'm really happy he stopped by the studio on a recent swing through New York. While Mod may not be a household name, those in the know about topics such as digital book publishing, Japan, and multi-day walking know and respect Mod's incredible body of work. This is a wide-ranging conversation covering everything from where to visit Japan outside Tokyo to some of the writing he's done on his epic 30-day walks. It's really great to get to know Craig Maud, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Craig Maud, welcome to Taste Podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Like, I just said off mic, like, I'm into your stuff. I'm into your shit. Like, I, I, I really am a fan of all of your work, um, and we'll get into it, the layers of it. And I just want to, like, describe your work and I'll, I'll link to it. I'll say some things in the intro. It's part journalism, part ethnography. It's part in performance art endurance project. I feel the way you walk and write and talk and create in these 10 to 30-day bursts, among other things. Do you agree with this assessment of your work? Yeah, sounds good. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, how did you end up with this form, That like the walk as a... Um, as a moment to actually write and create content under very strict rules, you gamify it, which is cool. You you create a, a narrative that you follow every morning. You're waking up in the States, at least, and you're reading your, your work. How did you come up with that? Yeah, I mean, the walking began uh, in around 2013. Um, I was invited to go on a walk with uh, this guy, John McBride, who has just been a long, long-term friend mentor. Uh, he's 20 years older than me. He came to Japan when he was like 17. And he started walking. He started doing all these walks when he was 18, 19. As part of, he was going to Japanese university and he was doing literary studies in Japanese. And um, just to better understand some of these old books, you know, Basho's, you know, Okuno Hosomichi and, and things like that, he would go and walk these routes. So in 2013, um, he invited me to do part of the um, Kumano Kodo, and I had never heard of it. I never knew anything about it. And uh, I was in this state where I was trying to figure out why I was in Japan. Because I'd been there for, you know, 13 years or so. I moved there in 2000. And I, you know, don't work with Japanese companies that much necessarily. I'm not, I'm not working at a company. Mm-hmm. I've always been independent. I've always done my own stuff. And um, I'm also not an explicit academic. Um, and so my being in Japan was sort of, I was looking for more concrete reasons to be there. And we went on this walk and it was really illuminating. I just, I knew nothing about these walks. I knew nothing about, um, the old roots of Japan, mm-hmm. the old spaces of Japan. And it kind of unlocked something. And then we started doing more. He invited me on more of these walks. And, uh, in 2016, I, I had done, you know, three years of them. And, you know, by that point, about two or three months of walking. And I thought, well, this is really interesting, and but they feel really ephemeral. Mm. And so how can I invite someone and how can we use the walk as a platform to, to make something? And that was when I invited Dan Rubin out as a photographer 
and we both photographed um, eight days on the Kamano Koldo, which felt at that time like eight days. Oh my God. Really this, roughing it. This yeah. is so long. Yeah. I mean, not really roughing it because yeah. you stay in these nice inns, but like, right, right, right. but it just felt like eight days. Endur- real endurance. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Eight yeah. days. How are we going to, you know, that's, <laughs> it's so. And it's, fast forward, you're doing 30 day walks. 30, now. 40 day walks. 40 yeah. day walks. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. eight days is just like, that's, that's a warm up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we did that and the, we kind of had this strategy. We were going to do eight days of the walk. And then we were going to hide for a week in a farmhouse and just put the whole book together then and because we were both busy and we're like, mm-hmm. oh, we don't want this to drag on forever. And it dragged on a few more months. But in the end, it, it was really successful. We had a successful Kickstarter around it. And um, to me, it just really kicked off this notion of using a walk as a platform for creative work. Amazing. So you would you did this walk, this eight-day walk, and the intention originally was to do a book, to yeah. create a tangible object from it. And, and you now photograph your own books and you're kind of your one-man show, but then you had help. And so did you find that capturing the writing in the moment was, was a really a, like a, a creative advantage? Yeah, well, so on that walk, there was no writing really. Okay. It was just it was just, just photography. Okay. I mean, again, to like, you know, you, you sort of try to create these parameters that enable success. And so on the first one, it was just, okay, how do we make this as simple as possible? Just photos, no words. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, it was like, we, we, we even set like the photo limit of like what we were allowed to include. So we had to be really rigorous about, yeah. you know, culling. But it was, it was in 2019 when I did the first real walk plus a bit of writing. Um, and that was on the Nakasendo and that was, uh, I walked from Tokyo to Kyoto and then did some other kind of, uh, walks around the Kee Peninsula at that time. And, um, that one was, it was funny because it felt rigorous and intense, but I was just writing like a paragraph each night. It was an SMS based, uh, newsletter. Yeah, yeah right. So we built this system. A couple friends in New York helped me build this SMS based publishing system so people could subscribe over SMS You'd get my missives in the morning mm. in your SMS like text folder on your phone. The straight dodgeball four-square mode, yeah. it feels like. Yeah. Well, I mean, the idea was like, how do we how do we co-op this kind of space that isn't used for storytelling? Definitely not. And that's extremely intimate. It's like your friends and family are the only ones who are ever allowed in there. And what would it feel like to say, hey, let me in just for a month. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna keep this going forever. It's time boxed which ended up being a critical component of like how I, how mm-hmm. I do a lot of this writing. And, um, and look, you know, this is what you're going to get. You can unsubscribe at any moment. When it's done, you're never going to hear from me again. And a ton of people signed, too many people signed mm-hmm. up because it turns out sending SMSs costs money. And oh, so we actually cut it short by a week because it was like the bill was going so My goodness. High. So this is pre-email. You were, you were actually paying by user in, in kind of a similar yeah. metered model. Interesting. We were using wow. the Twilio API yeah, and, yeah. And to send SMSs. It's, you know, I don't know, a few pennies per person, but we had thousands of people signed up. So yeah, it was expensive. And you weren't monetizing it in any way. You were footing all the bill. Not at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll get into your monetization model because it's very cool and, and very ahead of the Substack thing we talk about a lot uh, on the show. But Kisa by Kisa was what, hap- what kind of formed out of 20, this 2019 walk? Is this yeah, right? yeah, yeah. The 2019 walk, I was as I was doing that, as I was, I was doing the daily SMSs, but I also, um, just to make things as complicated as possible, <laughs> I took on a wired uh, piece to do while I was doing it plus yeah. an eater piece. And so I was writing these two huge pieces I don't even know what the thinking was. And I mean, physically, I didn't even, I wasn't even ready for it. I it was, I was doing, I sort of miscalculated all the day's distances. I was off by like 20% each day in terms of, I was 20% short. And uh, I realized like a weekend I was doing 30 or 40 kilometers a day. 
So you were clocking more miles I than you thought. I was clocking right. so many miles, and my feet were destroyed, and my pack was way too heavy. I wouldn't have brought Craig, as much Craig, let's as I get brought. into that a little bit for our listeners, yeah. because I want to really articulate what you're doing on one of these walks, because you've said you've got, you're on like two assignments, and then you're writing these 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 daily missives uh, to email, but you're also cre- capturing photos, and you're walking 30 kilometers from city to city or town to town, right? Exactly. And interviewing people along the way. Right. Photographing, um, just trying to get, just trying to listen to average, everyday people. I mean, there's no... I don't, you know, I've n- never done any of these walks with an agenda, a content yeah. agenda or anything like that. And, um, and it really is just farmers, people tending their gardens. I mean, there's no, I, I try to be really aware of obviously my position as a foreign person in this, you know, Asian country. I've been there for 23 years, mm-hmm. um, but still I recognize, you know, it's like I am this presence that, you know, that's kind of like not part of the the native flora and fauna. And, um, and so it's, and, and I have a set of like anti-pattern archetype, Mm. uh, books of people who've written about these things Mm -hmm. or written about walking in Japan in the eighties and nineties that I do not want to touch. Like, I feel like they're strictly, they're extremely anti-pattern in terms of how they Mm. treat the people and how they treat the, 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 the sort of um, just the countryside itself, you know, what's happening. And so I have, I have a few rules. Like one of my main rules is I'm not allowed to complain about anything. I agree. And I, I love that as a reader and the deep empathy that you have for your subjects and for the folks you meet along the way. And, you know, your language skills are obviously perfect. I mean, you've been there 23 years. And I think what gives me pleasure in reading your work is that you write about the discovery of when you're uh, when you're talking to a farmer, but tomato farmer, and they discover that you speak very well. In Japanese, you can actually have a conversation and like the surprise, their response, and then the way that they open up to you, yeah. it feels like a real strength. Yeah, yeah. That, I think that was what I realized when I started doing the walks is that I had this linguistic sort of skeleton key. Mm-hmm. And, um, but also, you know, watching my, my mentor, John, interact with everyone, he is beyond fluent. He has 40 years of tea ceremony under his belt, and tea ceremony has its own set of language and formality. And he brings that to his interactions with everyone. And what I realized was John was, um, he was elevating everyone he met. Truly, I mean, just truly like deep respect, total elevation. And um, I learned so much watching him through his use of language and his curiosity and his respect of everyone. And I try to bring that to my interactions as well. And so my goal is always, if if I ever point at anyone in an essay or a newsletter or whatever, I'm always, always, always just trying to elevate people as much as possible. You really are. And you're on the Taste Podcast as a food show because you love food. You obviously, it's in your body. And I want to hear about some of your home cooking and some of the, I have some questions about Japanese cuisine and, and regional regionality of it. But first, Kisa yep. uh, is short for Kisaten, right? Yes, exactly. And I've experienced, I've been to Japan many times and I, I've experienced this myself and I think it is very, very unique. But explain to our listeners what a Kisa is and how you formed this 2019 walk into a book called Kisa by Kisa. Yeah, so um, you can kind of think of them almost as like mid-century American diners. So like 1950s diners, 1960s diners. And Kisa 10 and uh, now the really old ones, they're, they're called June Kisa, which means kind mm-hmm. of like old older Kisa. And... Um, uh, I'm in the middle of having Kisa by Kisa translated into Japanese, and I'm working back and forth with the translator. Mm. And we're trying to figure out how to uh, relocalize everything with the, the knowledge that Japanese readers are going to know what I'm talking about. And so I simplified it by just calling them all Kisa. 
Um, but there, you would call a, a newer kisa mm. just a kisa. You could call it. It's sort of like a cafe. It's sort of like a diner. Um, the kisa that most people think about when you say kisaten or jun kisa are really mid-century, mm-hmm. um, essentially cafe diners that would serve um, black coffee. Everyone's smoking. Uh, formica tables. They all have the same style, like sofa chairs. They're called um, sofa isu, um, which are like pretty low. All the tables are really low. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like this transition space between sitting on tatami mats and sitting in proper like full chairs. So everything is kind of like in between a Western chair and a, and a Japanese tatami. But room. then you're like kind of transported to like Des Moines in 1956 exactly. because you've got this coffee that's really harsh. And I want to talk about yeah. actual coffee, but then you've got thick toast. Yeah, right? yeah. So the food. You have to remember this is the peak of Kisa were sort of post-war, 50s, 60s, 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in massive decline now because everyone's aging out. Like all the people who started these Kisa in the 60s and 70s are all in their 80s now. And um, the food element of it was, again, kind of born out of necessity. What do we have? What do we have, what do we have access to? What can we reliably cook? And um, no real full kitchen, that's for sure. And so you got things like toast there's this toast everywhere and but uh, definitely like at least an inch to two, two inches yeah thick, really thick toast thick cut toast yeah. so this the story i've heard in, in, in my reporting what i've what i've kind of come come to understand is that um a lot of this morning culture so it's called morning sets that mm. you get the toast you get toast and a hard-boiled egg and a cup of coffee and it's like a dollar or two dollars and um that kind of began in this town called ichinomiya which is near nagoya which is a port city and um, in Ichinomiya, Ichinomiya was a huge manufacturing town. And they they used to say, uh, what was the phrase they had? Uh, oh, God, what was it called? Um, Agachaman. So they, they used to say, uh, because the town was, it was all textiles, all these machines were just like, you know, making this gacha, 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 gacha mm. noise. And they said, you know, gacha, gachaman is every time it does gacha, uh, Ichimayen, one, 10,000 yen pop out. So it, ah, it was an extremely wealthy area. Yeah. It was just post-war manufacturing, textiles, super wealthy. But the machines were so loud, no one could have meetings in any of the factories. So in order to have meetings, these little cafes started to spring up, and all the meetings were happening in the morning. And so they started serving food to sort of align with these meeting needs. Yeah, you needed sustenance you needed with your like uh, your menthol cigarettes. You know? Exactly. Oh, <laughs> so many cigarettes. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's sort of where this I, this morning culture of food and coffee in the morning, because Tokyo doesn't really have this. If you walk around Tokyo, the, it's hard to find anything. I went to one in Wayno one time. It's But, but even the Kisa, no, yeah. no one opens before 9 or 10. Yeah, yeah. At the okay, earliest. I see what you're saying. At the earliest. Yeah. So this idea of like a true morning culture. So Nagoya and Ichinomiya, it's like 6, 7 a.m. Yeah. open times. And so people were there early. And that kind of, this idea of um, Ichinomiya is kind of special in that they, they serve nuts and they put mm. an- anko, so the, 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 the paste on top of the toast. Um, and that kind of spread out from there. That's sort of the, the story is that this Kisa, Ichinomiya style, Nagoya style Kisa were kind of the ones that kind of made it out. I have to ask you about pizza toast. Sure. Because it, there seems to have been a moment probably well after 1956 when mid-century when these were starting out as these simple meeting places when pizza entered the equation you've you've done a great video I'll link to in the show notes about a pizza toast construction beautiful but like pizza toast you find it on the road when you're doing kisa by kisa right yeah so when when I was doing that Nakasendo walk in 2019 I was trying to find through lines for the, the pieces and I realized pretty quickly that okay 
no matter where you go, because a big part of what I'm uh, walking to experience is the depopulation that's happening in Japan. So J Japanese yes. population decline is like most first, first world countries today. Um, it's it's a pretty extreme decline, and the decline is happening entirely in the countryside. So Tokyo year over year is growing. All the countryside towns are shrinking for the most part or consolidating. And I quickly realized that um, no matter how down and out a town would be in the countryside, you're always going to have a barber and a kisa. Yeah. Like that was you know, non-negotiable. Those were always there. And the kisa were becoming uh, community centers, essentially. Everyone would just hang out in them all day. Everyone was in their 70s and 80s and 90s. And, um, and I realized they were all serving for the most part, pizza toast. They all had pizza toast on the menu. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and what's the cheese? What's What kind of cheese? I mean, just like, um, <laughs> like Kraft American, you know, it's like sliced American cheese. Yellow. Yeah, yeah, Kraft American. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. I mean, some of them go a little more fancy. Yeah. But, you know, the whole, the whole idea, again, it's a post-war, what can we do with what we have and we don't have a lot? So, okay, we can get a toaster oven. That's easy. So, you know, toaster oven, what can you make in a toaster oven? Mm -hmm. You can put some red sauce, some peppers, uh, it's a lot of electric appliances, right? All electric. All electric. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Totally electric. We're switching in the States to that, and then we've written about it in taste, but Japan's been doing electric only for a long time. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of these cases, you know, they don't even have a burner. Right. Um, if they do, then they're doing kind of a, a, a Neapolitan-style spaghetti. So it's like spaghetti and ketchup. You know, again, like what do we, what's the MVP, minimum viable sort of yeah. product we could do that involves pasta? <laughs> MVP spaghetti sounds yeah. delicious. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, they love it. But all of it has like, you know, cheap sausages in it. You know, that was sort of the... Let's talk about the coffee too because, you know, there's a great third wave, especially coffee scene in Tokyo. I mean, Fuglin is just one of many that yeah. just do incredible work. But these coffees are not that. It seems no. to me from your, from your writing and from your video work, um, it seems like... They're not V60s, right? They're kind of like maybe French press or is no, it V60? They're, they're pour overs. They are pour but overs. They're not, not V60 pour overs. They're other yeah. Kalita and other things. Right, right. Um, and you'll get some siphon coffee. Siphon, right. Yeah. You see a lot of siphon coffee. You see coffee. a lot of that. It's so funny that Blue Bottle's like siphon coffee, uh, $15. <laughs> I know. You know, and in Japan, <laughs> you can get it for two bucks if, you, if you're in the right place. Yeah. Um, but no, the coffee's not good. It's just not, it's, it's yeah. like for the most part. It's not, gritty, man. It's gritty. Yeah. It's, I mean, sometimes you'll find like a sweet, uh, you know, flavorful, something with a little bit of flavor, but really it's, it's meant to be paired with cigarettes and some toast and you know, for the most part, people dump a bunch of cream and sugar mm -hmm. in it as well. So, you know, the, 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 the black, delicious third wave coffee that we are also, you know, kind of yeah. used to Expressions now. of citrus from Ethiopia, zero, right? Not zero. happening in Akisa, right? So what I order is I always get the American, not Americano. I get the mm. American coffee, which is the normal coffee, which is drip coffee. Um, and then they just cut it with a little bit of hot water. Yeah. So it's kind of like an Americano, but with coffee. But with not espresso, not espresso. but regular yeah. pour, uh, brewed coffee. Interesting. Exactly. Um, Fascinating. I want to talk more about food, but I want to first get into your recent Tokyo walk, which was a week-long trip back to Tokyo. Yeah. Uh, you'd, you'd moved there originally 23 years ago, and you rediscovered a lot of the neighborhoods. And um, you can you can uh, read this uh, by joining your membership program, uh, Special Projects, uh, which is great. But I, I want to hear about Tokyo. We, 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 we write about it a lot. We think about it a lot in America. But we don't really – go there and think about the change because we don't have that perspective as Americans. We, we only go there as tourists. So what is happening in Tokyo and what, my main question is, what's vanishing before our eyes that we as fans of Tokyo and, and tourists need to go see? 
Yeah. So massive development is happening in central Tokyo. So Marunouchi has been completely transformed over the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Tokyo Station's been, you know, uh, basically rebuilt, but with the original brick and everything. But now it's, you know, earthquake proof and it looks beautiful. They've done a beautiful job, but it's surrounded by, you know, all these skyscrapers that didn't exist 10 years ago. So uh, that area, the Tokyo Station, Marunouchi mm-hmm. area is just completely rebuilt. And then um, Rapungi is un- <laughs> unrecognizable. I mean, when I moved there, Rapungi was the most down and out dirty, like just like, you know, you're not going to get stabbed anywhere in Japan, but like maybe you get stabbed in Rapungi. Um, it was just a mess, you know, and you kind of go there. It was just a drinking yeah. sort of, you know, red light district scene. And today I, I, I often think about like someone coming to Tokyo today and going to Rapungi, what their image of it would be because I, I carry so much baggage with me. And I think it would just be this like fancy posh, it's like, oh, that's where the museums are, and that's where Rapungi Hills and Midtown and all these other, you know. Wild. It's, it's, super, it's so strange. It's surreal. It sounds like, honestly, Williamsburg, because 20 years ago, Williamsburg was the same thing you described, and now you go there. It is truly one of the most torched neighborhoods in all of the world. It is yeah. luxury. I love in your recent uh, seven-day walk, you, you were trolling Rapungi Hills pretty hard. Oh, yeah. I felt oh. that was great. Rapungi Hill is the first building <laughs> that made me realize how much I could hate a building. I never, so I, you know, I moved to Japan when I was 19. They built Rapungi Hills a couple years later. And uh, it was just so immediately distasteful and disgusting mm. and unusable and annoying. And it took me years to kind of develop uh, an architectural sense to, to really recognize how bad it was. I really truly believe it's one of the worst buildings in, in Tokyo, like bar none. It just has no respect for the surrounding area. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's it's an ugly building. I don't think it's beautiful. I think it's kind of you know pretty bland. Um, the the layout of it is completely inscrutable. People who work there can't even navigate it. It's you know, and most of the companies that moved in there were given massive discounts to move in there when it first opened, and a lot of them have left. Which oh, I think they just telling. couldn't deal with the, the aesthetics. Yeah, this is not a great, and it killed it's a kid. Tough. Like the building killed a child soon after it opened. I mean, yeah. which felt you know. In, in a lot of ways, portentous of, of the lack of care that went into it. So yeah, no, I. So I kind of I I'm I'm really, I'm I'm very vocally not a fan. Of you are, but you do it in your way that I love, and I think you know. I think this is the most negativity I've ever actually heard from Craig Maud. Yeah. Speak your name, the third person, because I feel your writing never really goes there. It's almost more coded in a cool way, and and you have such respect for the country. So I think, yeah, well, but I think it's important to call out bad urban decisions because we all yeah. have to live with this for 30, 40, 50, 60 years or whatever. And so I mean, what's nice is right around the corner. I think Midtown to me is a much better version of what a Rapungi Hills could be mm-hmm. like. I think the building is better. I think it's uh, easily, more easily navigable. I think the, the resources in it are better. I think the uh, the park out back is beautiful. I think the 2121 design site is a wonderful museum. I think the way it integrates with the surrounding Nogizaka area is, is beautiful. I just think it's a good, they did a good job. And so in contrast, um, I think it is important to call out Mori um, because Mori is completely changing the skyline of Tokyo. Um, yeah. mostly, I guess, for the better in some ways, but thankfully it's all pretty concentrated. It's all around. Are the you feeling area. that some of this change is for the better in terms of, um, the access in the city? Is it becoming more accessible? Yeah. I mean, a lot of what's being built is housing, which I think is good. Right. right? And so you look at really cities good. like San Francisco that can't build a house to save their life. And, and, right. and, uh, so it's really heartening mm-hmm. to just see giant, you know, housing skyscrapers going up kind of all over the place. Um, so that's good. And I think, you know, the magic of Tokyo is in its 
kind of jumble zoning uh, where everything can exist next to everything else. And that still exists. That's still happening. Um, what's being lost is and, – and a thing to keep in mind too is like Tokyo is so vast. Yeah. Tokyo is, is – 23 like, million? Did I make that up? Something like that. Yeah. And, but it's also like 23 cities. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just – it's so huge and every – you know, and you can kind of get out of that central Yamano, Yamanote loop and it just keeps going and there's so much beauty and, um, and wonderful neighborhoods outside of that loop. Mm-hmm. So all of this – most of this construction is really happening in the center of the city. And so whatever we may feel, quote unquote, being lost there – and what's really being lost is like low-rise stuff. It's just, you know, the city was flattened in the war. It was eviscerated, zeroed out, absolutely zeroed out in the war. So a lot of buildings aren't great. You know, there was a lot of uh, sort of ad hoc building that Built happened. in haste, built under really tough circumstances. Exactly. Right. And, right. and, you know, low considering, you know, the mm-hmm. land value versus what, how it's being used, just right. sort of out of whack. And um, so a lot of what I noticed disappearing in the central area were—, were um, Sento, for one, the the public baths, but that was also a product of of people having baths at home. <laughs> like people, yeah. no one had a bath at home in Tokyo. You know, if you lived in an apartment in Tokyo in the seventies, sixties, seventies, eighties, it was fairly likely you didn't have a bath, so you go to the public bath down the road. Mm-hmm. So they had a purpose. And now everyone has a unit bath, has a beautiful little Toto unit bath. They don't have to go to the public bath. Bless. So, so those disappearing are, I you know. I love public baths, and I think there's something important about it for the community. I think you are losing something by losing them. I mean, there's a level of, like, when you're seeing your neighbor in that state full, fully nude, you're getting – there's a connection. There's a human element with your neighbors that we don't have as Americans. We don't do that. We're, totally. Well, and I just think seeing people naked is important. I this agree. Is, this is like – there's a weird American prudishness, and just seeing uh, people of all ages naked – and 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 destigmatizing nudity and just existing in that. I mean, that was for me so transformative culturally to go to Japan. I remember the first time I was taken to like an onsen. I was freaked out. I was so freaked out and so kind of. Well, there's a woman like prudish. potentially. You know, I was in an onsen in Hokkaido, and there's a woman. You know, in our changing room. Yeah, like, some, sometimes they're mixed. Yeah, mixed, yeah, which is like as American, like what? The, I mean, it's very different. Yeah, 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 it's it's sort of a shock. I mean, again, because I think Americans are just so yeah. hyper prudish. So I, I, um, I've personally just found it to be really liberating. Also, it's like kind of knowing where your body's going to go by seeing naked old people. <laughs> it's true. It's sort of like it sort of demystifies the aging process. It destigmatizes a lot of it. And I don't know. I There's a lot of beauty to it. And then just talking with people naked is quite Craig, I fully agree. Nice. It, it gives you a, a level of calm. It, it gives, you know, body image issues. It kind of gives it a rest. Exactly. Anyways, let's transition to some more food talk because I, I really do want to ask you this question because I've, I've always – wondered this. Um, how regional is Japanese cuisine? I mean this um, specifically, if you're going to Hokkaido or Matsumoto or Fukuoka, um, are you finding cuisine that you're not finding in other places? Or, I hate using the word monolith, I hate using the word uh, homogeneous, but is Japanese cuisine a monolith? No, it's a very regional. You know, I mean, an example, last year I did the 10-city um, walk. This is one of my the project last yeah, last November, which December. is becoming a book. Yeah, uh, eventually. eventually. Okay, sorry, <laughs> they're, all, they're all they're all theoretically becoming sorry. books. Um, but like, so I started in Hokkaido and I was in Hakodate, and the first morning I went to I was walking around the market and I went to a cafe Akisa, and 
there was a fisherman there who was blasted. It was nine in the morning. <laughs> he was so drunk. And he had just finished fishing all of his squid for the morning. And he forced the Kisa owner to serve me up his squid. And, but this is just a thing people will, mm. for example, in Hokkaido eat in the morning. This wasn't too out of the, uh, you know, she had it already, you know, it was like prepared beautifully. And Flattened, dried squid, like jerky? No, 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 no. Like fresh oh, cut, like cool. sashimi, sashimi grade great. squid, you know, with a little bit of wasabi, yeah. you know, drizzled with some soy sauce. And it was, I'm not a huge, <laughs> like raw squid fan. Um, 8 a.m. to uh, yeah, at, at, yeah. First thing in the morning, let yeah. me have some raw squid. It was like butter. It was, yeah. it was, it was amazing. I mean, the guy was completely bonkers. But um, you know, that was just a good example of, mm-hmm. of you're not gonna, you're probably not gonna find that outside. You're not like, gonna find outside of like, yeah. Okay. Into, into, are there other dishes? I mean, we know okonomiyaki in Osaka, but like, there seems to be uh, a puzzle in my head. Like, how regional is Japanese? Like, is there a way to articulate this for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think you know. Japan regionally likes to brand themselves in certain ways. So if you, if you go to Sendai, you're going to have beef tongue, for example. Mm. Or if you go to Hokkaido, is all about you know Genghis Khan style, <laughs> you know grilled grilled meat. Yeah. Um, but even okonomiyaki is like you know has there's the Kanto style, there's mm. Osaka, there's Hiroshima style. Oh right, of course Hiroshima yeah. style. Yeah. Of course, so right, so right. and even soy sauce. You know, it has gradients as you go yeah. across the country. There's, you know, I, I went to a um, a restaurant that, that did a rice tasting flight, mm. and that was really fascinating. So they'll give you ten small, you know, bowls of rice from across, you know, all these different parts of the country, and you kind of pick up on all the different, fl- you know, the different. What flavor are profiles. the different flavors? I really. Uh, yeah, I mean, I cool. I couldn't I couldn't really tell yeah. that yeah. I, my my palate isn't isn't rice attuned. Yeah. But even just you know someone being able to run a restaurant that did that. You know, there's just varying levels of sweetness and citrusness and, you know, obviously mouthfeel changes depending on uh, the varietals and, and things like that. So um, it is it is extremely, um, you know, regional. I mean, it's just the history is so long. Of course. And I, I asked this question um, just to set up because I think we fetishize regionality of countries as food writers, as Americans. We, we think of like every country having this um, like map essentially. We, look, we think of Italy, right? We think of every country, but I, I push back on it in some countries because maybe there isn't a regionality, but you've answered this question about Japan. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just because Japan's carrying forward a thousand years plus years of, of culinary yeah. history. I mean, when it was warring states period, it was a bunch of countries essentially. Absolutely. You know, so keep. I think that still is present in, in contemporary day Japan. When you were on this 10 city walk last fall, was there a dish that you were in the back of your head while you're doing all this work that you were really thinking, man, I wish I could find that in a izakaya or a kisa or, or any, any type of restaurant? Um, I'm trying to think, like, what what really blew my mind. Um, I did I did have a tendon, which is tempura on top of rice, um, in a little city on the, on the coast of uh, the Sea of Japan. That was pretty mind-blowing. I mean, a lot of the 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 regional stuff too is about freshness and what's what's available. I had um, fermented mackerel uh, a couple years ago, also near up in the same area, Fukui, um, Ken, up really on the on the coast of Japan, uh, and the fermented mackerel was wild. I mean, it was they fermented for like a year. Oh, interesting. And when you're, I was thinking days. So no, we're thinking, wow. it's it's like cheese. Yeah, it sure. comes out. It comes out like cheese, and they grill it. They there's all these different ways to prepare it, and this was in Obama City, 
Um, and I went up there on like a little uh, trip sponsored by the Tourism Bureau of mm. Obama City, actually. And they that that's their their very specific re- like you can't get uh, this this fermented mackerel anywhere else. It's just it's mainly because it's so stinky, yeah, and right. So specific, you know, the the popularity of it isn't you know off the charts. Does it have like a medicinal kind of connection? You think uh, about a good giving you power? I mean, I mean, a part of it was. How do we um, bring? Because they 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 were rich with mackerel by the Sea of Japan, and so to to carry it over into Kyoto, there's called the 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 like mackerel highway. Yeah, it was like a four day walk to get to Kyoto, and I think a lot of it was you know obviously just preservational. Yeah, sort of you know uh, standard ways of preserving things, um, but I found it to be kind of delightful. It wasn't it wasn't off putting. I ate a ton of it, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, prepared in all these different ways, and it was it was all it was all. I good. I can't wait to make it to Obama and try try this dish. Uh, I think of the fermented skate in Korea, which has uh, a less desirable. I think it's more of a, a urinal uh, okay. kind of quality to it, um, but similar. One year in a pot, basically in the kitchen, just sitting yeah. there. Yeah, I just had deep fried skate last night. See, Montauk deep fried fresh, like one day out the water. Yeah. in the fall right now. Man. Down in Lower East Side in Servos. Oh, yeah. You went to Servos. Okay. That was the loudest restaurant I've ever been in my life. Little Dime Square action for you, Craig Mod. <laughs> you went to the Dime Square. You went to the, the, the heart of Dime Square. Well, it's an interesting it's an interesting <laughs> contrast because, like, you literally cannot find a restaurant that loud in all of Japan. Yeah. You can't. I mean, I was there with a friend, and we were just screaming at each other, you know, and but that's – I've had that dinner it's, experience in Manhattan many times, you know. It's, it's sort of uniquely of, of New York. It's a vibe. I want to ask you, Craig, about cooking because I, in your work, you know, you don't really talk about home cooking too much. And I, I follow your writing and, and your newsletters. Um, do you cook at home? I mean, I, I, this is a general question, but is there, is there something you'll enjoy making, uh, something that you've, you've over the years have mastered? Yeah, no, I cook a ton. Uh, and during the pandemic, it was sort of a leveling up of everything. Yeah. And I, I took time to really kind of build out the kitchen with just better tools. So, I mean, I do a, a lot of uh, baking, so with uh, doing breads, and so I do pizza doughs. I have a little pizza oh, oven. Cool. Um, I, I try to have like a pizza party. I have a garden uh, at my house, and I try to do like a twenty-person pizza party every couple of months. Um, what a cool hang! Yeah. Yeah, yeah, All yeah. your friends, you bring them over backyard distance. Everyone comes pizza. over, brings toppings they wanna they wanna throw on, and my, one of my favorites is doing a shirasu, so white bait, which is uh, the peninsula I live on. Is kind of you can get fresh white bait every day, yeah, and uh, white bait with some lemon. You know, it's like a little bit of like fresh mozzarella. There's a couple of uh, mozzarella uh, makers in my neighborhood, and uh, it's just it's so it's sublime. You know, it's so good. So you know, doing pizzas, doing breads. Um, I cook. You know, I do a lot of breakfast stuff, cool. uh, omelets and things like that. But then also just like a lot of standard Italian. You know, uh, uh, sort of pastas, risotto. I do um, uh, a a fried, a pan-fried baked chicken cutlet that mm. I kind of love. How is the chicken in Japan? It's Compared, great. It's it, phenomenal. It's it's phenomenal. You don't and you don't have to like struggle to find. Yeah. You know, somewhat, you know, humanely right. raised. Chicken's the only meat I eat now. Okay. I, I stopped eating beef and pork and chicken actually twelve years ago, and then I added chicken. I went to Morocco, and I was traveling around Morocco. And I was trying to be strict about the no meat, and it was just I was going to die. I don't know what – there's nothing to eat. You can't pack enough power bars. No, you can't. Yeah. And you, oh, they're so gross after a while. They are. Yeah, I know that scene. You just you just run out of yeah. – you, you can't keep it down. So I added chicken back in to the diet, and I was like, oh, my God, chicken is – So good. Chicken could be so wonderful. So it's still in there. But 
What about raw fish? Yeah. Are you not doing raw fish? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm into raw fish. Um, Yeah. I mean, I usually, I'm not seeking out sushi. I'm not like, I don't crave sushi. Interesting. But but there's a great supermarket near my house that serves, you can buy a little bento box of exceptional sushi. Yeah. Uh, And I, you know, I'll do that once or twice a month. It's like a great little dinner. Are you always cooking rice at all times in your household? No, I don't even have a rice cooker, so I do it all. I do it on the stove. Do it old school, right? Um, which is so easy. You know, it's like it's like a fifteen minute, twenty minute procedure. It's you know, so you just kind of get the rice going, prep everything else. Yeah, it's like it's a pretty easy thing to just integrate with general cooking. Um, shockingly so, you know, if you're doing uh, if you're doing brown rice, it's a little more complicated, a little different. But standard white rice is, you know, you can just knock it out. You don't need a, a zojirushi giant, no. you know, rice cooker. They're sitting. so fun to buy though on Amazon they're when they're on sale. They're great. Like you have to just buy one. I yeah, I just <laughs> thankfully I don't have counter space anymore. Yeah. So I have two I have two uh, toaster ovens. Balmuda sent me one. Oh, um, I should give a shout out to. I've never thanked them publicly. <laughs> well, I, I've I almost bought that Balmuda, and I actually have a Japanese toaster. I have a Mitsubishi. That's really great and like yeah. a quarter of the price of Bamuda. Yeah. Is Bamuda good though? It's really good. They sent okay. me it for free. So um I, you know, would I pay the list price for it? I don't even know what it costs. But yeah, it's good. You put a little bit of water in the steam chamber and like it steams your toast and Respect, Craig. I, I never really bought that as a as a thing, but I I'll take your word for it. It's pretty good. No spawn con here. Pretty good. Um I love just talking to you about home cooking in Japan because I think um, we don't really talk about workaday Japanese cooking that much on the show. You were raised in, in North Carolina? You grew up in North Carolina? Uh, right? Actually, Hartford, Connecticut. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, but I spent a lot of time in North Carolina. Okay. My dad had moved down there, and I spent a decade. Um, I, this is a very like tangential thing, but he passed away in mm-hmm. 2011. Didn't really know him, and everyone else in the family was dead, and I had to go bury him. And are you going to write about this one day? Yeah, yeah. I actually I wrote an entire book about it, but okay. um, it was decided that it should not be published. Okay, well, <laughs> so I've met it, but we we could come back to that again at, at a, a point in the future. Yeah. Um, but no, it was this incredible experience um, on a number of levels. But I became very close friends with uh, this lawyer who, who was down there, hand, sort of handling. He had the will, mm. and he was seventy two, seventy three when I met him. And this was the last job he took on for the most part. And we just became really good friends. And I ended up spending the next decade-ish, next eight, nine years, going to North Carolina two or three times a year just to hang out with his lawyer. And I fell in love. This is Western North Carolina, Tryon. I fell Hmm. in love with the area. And on a lark, I went up to Asheville. And I was just like, I drove into Asheville. I was like, Hmm. what? Where did I, what did I happen on? And yeah. it's incredible. And the food was phenomenal. The donuts, the grits. I mean. Yeah, you go to Chaipani? Yes. That, that Indian. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Spot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's just shocking. And I think the first weekend I spent in Asheville, I think Johnny Depp was also. In town. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's just like, it was just, well, it was just finding such a weird gem unexpectedly. So that really made me fall in love with North Carolina. And then my relationship with the, that lawyer who just became this strange, super, super close friend. You know, I'm, I'm 30, he's 72. Wow. And we, I think, found uh, a very bizarre connection. His children, I don't think, ever understood what was going on. Why? Yeah, they probably had some questions for their dad. But, like, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like this is going to be a screenplay at some time, so let's go. Let's go. Um, 
I got to ask you, though, that question was trying to set up something about food. When you're in Japan, is there anything that you still really can't get or crave from your background in Connecticut? And- <laughs> well, you know, I'm laughing because my ba- my, my Connecticut uh, <laughs> sort of um, background is so so just depraved on every level yeah. culturally. There was nothing. I mean, I grew up in a town that, you know, just did not have any kind of richness internationally, certainly. I mean, in terms of accessible, immediately accessible or like culturally uh, baked in cuisine. So no, there's nothing. I mean, and my, my parents, my mom didn't ever cook. It was my grandmother. I was raised with my grandparents, my mom and my grandmother was always cooking. She had like three dishes that she cooked. It was like granny's goulash and fried bologna and good. SpaghettiOs. That was like, yeah. that was pretty much it. And I grew up on Wendy's cheeseburgers. My my mother and grandmother would go for a drive every night at like 9 p.m. Mm. And they would go and they would buy me a Wendy's double cheeseburger, fries, and a Coke. That's late. I would eat that at 10 p.m. Wow. almost every night. So that was the that was the sort of culinary background that I came Seems from. Seems extreme, Craig. Seems extreme for, for any situation. It was pretty extreme looking yeah. back on it. In the moment, you're just like, oh, yeah, obviously, cheeseburgers sure. at 10 p.m. every night. That makes sense. Um, so is there an American-style hamburger that you're getting that, uh, you know? No, I mean, that, uh, I'm not, you know, not eating meat. I mean, the one thing I guess I'm missing right, is is, is the, uh, in America now, with the Impossible Burgers and, and the fake meats, um, those are harder to get in Japan. So it's, you know, it's pretty easy to find an Impossible Burger in New York, I know, I'm, I think it was not Union Square Cafe serving one up or Gramercy mm-hmm. Tavern or something um, to find a fancy like no meat burger. Can't really. I mean, superiority, unfortunately, even caught it. They're in like yeah. a buffer there. He's opening, Brooks is opening soon, but that's the guy. Yes, superiority burger. That's I used to guy. go East, uh, East Village. Yeah. Yes, I used to, I used to do like a, a pilgrimage <laughs> there every time I came to. Yeah, well, to it'll York. be open soon in the old Odessa space. Uh, nice. It's going to be a big opening. Oh, cool. Um, I want to pivot to a profile that you wrote on your last uh, your walk two walks ago it was last yep. fall for uh, Denikochi, which yep. was such a great profile. I'm oh, thank you. Such a fan of that piece of writing, and I just want to know a little bit about Den and how you got to know him, and and just tell us a little bit about what he represents about an older generation of Japan that you were capturing in that essay. I'll link to in the show notes. I think it's live. Is it behind a paywall or is no, that? No, no, that's open. I'll yeah, link to that. That's that. Everyone should read this piece. It's really remarkable. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you're uh, welcome. Um, yeah, I met Den years ago, maybe 2016-ish, with again with John, my mentor. Mm-hmm. We were doing um, sort of uh, like a pottery tour. You know, again, food cuisine regionality is a thing, and then yeah. certainly craft regionality is a huge thing in Japan. And Kyushu is sort of known as like the pottery, you know, yeah. island. And um, Karatsu, the town that Den's inn is run in, it's called Yoyokaku, is the inn's name. And it's in Karatsu, and Karatsuyaki uh, is a very famous type of pottery. And um, and so we were kind of over there exploring Karatsuyaki and staying at Yoyokaku, and it, we just mm. fell in love with it. And Den is such a loquacious, like, open, like, why? Like, just come, please, have a whiskey with me, sit in, so cool. sit in the you, library. So cool. talk about this man, I mean, the way he is, takes hus- hospitality to a different zone. He, yeah. yeah, and he's old. He's in his yeah. 90s now, you know. And yeah. uh, when I met him, he was already quite old and he just retired but he lives on site so he built his house in the back of the garden of the inn and uh you know he his history was you know again post-war guy 
um, who was trying to figure out what to do. His father had married into the inn. Mm-hmm. His father hated it. And Den went to work at the Fujia Hotel in uh, Hakone. And um, he, the Fujia back then was mainly just foreigners. It was like a celebrity. There was like people rolling in yeah. from all over the world. Exactly. Yeah. And so he worked there on, a, on kind of a, a, almost randomly. And uh, he just fell in love with the internationalness of it. And he fell in love with the hospitality element of, yeah. um, of running these things. And he just he said, well, I have an inn back. My dad has an inn. He hates it. Let me go take it over. And let me try to open up this other part of Japan because the Fujia is a Western style hotel in Japan, which is in its own way beautiful and unique mm-hmm. and it, like unlike anything else in the world, you know, because it does mix. It's this, it's this late 1800s, early 19, 1900s type of architecture. It's like Taisho era, Meiji era, where people are trying to figure out how to, how to meld. Is there paper? Yeah, yeah, there's paper, paper everywhere, there's, there's right? There's paper in, in a lot of places. Cool. But there's like Zen windows, Zen, Zen-shaped yeah. windows that you'd find in a, in a temple. Um, but, you know, again, the sense of proportion, the way the walls are, are kind of uh, set up, uh, these, these spaces, these kind of liminal spaces are all very Japanese, but like wrapped in this Western kind of aesthetic. I really love it. I think it's a beautiful, um, it's very Japan-specific contemporary kind of architecture that I think everyone should go and experience and enjoy. And so the Fujia is kind of of that. And then Den was Den was thinking, well, okay, you, this is a hotel. What about a traditional Japanese inn? How can I take that and open that up to a broader audience? Because mm-hmm. back then, you know, in the 50s and 60s, it was really hard to go to a lot of these inns as a foreign traveler because they just no one spoke English. They weren't ready for you. They didn't, they didn't think you could handle it. And I think a lot of them probably just had no foreigner rules. Yeah, there wasn't really a a business for them there. It wasn't part of the model. Yeah, and it wasn't like, oh, we need the tourist, you know, revenue or whatever, so let let them in. So, uh, Den, yeah, he went back to Kyushu, and there were U.S. Army bases nearby, and he kind of really leaned on that. He'd go up to Fukuoka, he'd go Mm -hmm. to the bars in Fukuoka, he'd go to the foreigner bars, and he would just kind of seduce these, like, young army people. He'd say, I'll let you stay for free, I I have this Japanese-style inn, come and stay if you like it, tell your friends. Yeah, tell your friends, send the postcard, yeah. Exactly. And it worked. Smart. He just built up this amazing international community around a very gorgeous, beautifully preserved, beautifully renovated Japanese inn. It's really it's, it's a one, great one piece. I'm going to link to it yeah. um, and just make sure to read it because it gives, as you've outlined, it's this the profile of this of this really special you know person and. And it's worth reading. I want to ask you about Korea. Have you walked around Korea? I, I ask because I, I, I've done work with Korean food and culture. I've, I'm writing our next book with Dookie Hong about uh, Korea, Korean food in, around the world. And I'd like to know, like, have you spent time walking? A little bit. Uh, you know, again, John and I did a reconnaissance mission to Korea. We, we went and stayed at actually Tongdosa, which is a famous Buddhist temple. Uh, we spent a couple nights sleeping in uh, the monks' quarters. Um, and which what, uh, which area do you remember? Central-ish. Okay. I'm, I want to say Central-ish, South Korea. And we, uh, you know, would wake up at 3 in the morning to help with the rice cooking. And it was amazing, the vats that the rice was being cooked in on top of flame, you know, open pits essentially, um, were just huge. And you had these guys with shovels, yeah, you know, literal shovels that were like getting the rice out. And then the char along the inside of the bowl was, you know, it was the size of, 
I don't know. I couldn't, you couldn't even wrap your arms around it. And they would just, they would rip off the char and mm-hmm. they would hand it out. And John and I were so kind of enamored with the char and we were eating it and we were, we were expressing our love for it that when we left, the head monk gave us like three bags. We had like 20 kilos of char. Of the char? <laughs> did, you have, did you pour tea over it and have it with tea as well? Did yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, did that, yeah. The, we did that in the dining hall. Yeah. Um, no, it was, it was wonderful. It was really, be- it was beautiful. Yeah, it was spectacular. And I've done a little bit of traveling uh, in South, South Korea uh, around Busan mm-hmm. um, because there's, there's a history of actually Japanese uh, castles, castle building in Southern South Korea. And so we, John and I, were going to some of the old castle sites. Just kind of, I've not, I've not been to a castle in, in near Busan, but I want to ask you about just the the way the cuisine expresses itself. Um, you know, in, in Korea, you know, there's there's you know, namu seasoned vegetables and a soy pickle, uh, jingaji. There's like definitely some types of cuisine dishes that you're going to find in Japan. You're going to find those like seasoned vegetables and pickles in Japan, but there, I'm not. Like I'm wondering, like kimchi is so uniformly Korean. Yeah. I mean, you're not finding that in Japan, right? I mean, there isn't like a kimchi. So like I'm just wondering that contrast if if you have any insight into into the two cultures and how um kimchi and spice is being expressed in Japan. I mean, it's tough to find jalapenos, you know? Yeah. It's just it's tough to find things with like a really strong Kick, or gojigaru, which is like the powder, the pepper powder, which is you're not finding that as much in Japan. I mean, you can get kimchi at every supermarket. Of course, right. every supermarket's going to have it. Yes, in 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 Japan. Um, but yeah, it's not a staple. It's certainly not in the way it is in Korea for sure. Um, but is is natto, for example, a thing in Korea? Chunjujang, like okay. extra aged tenjan, okay. is, is similar to natto. Okay, but I don't. It's not the same um, texture, and it's certainly. I mean, I'm speaking only from my own experience in Korea, and uh, I, I could be off on this, but there isn't um, a breakfast natto uh, equivalent that I've experienced personally. So. Okay. I mean, you asked earlier, like, what I cook at home, and I love, I mean, a good, mm. you know, bowl of rice with natto and a rye on top of it for, yeah. for breakfast is so delicious. Uh, it's sublime. It's so sublime. I think natto is delicious. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, interesting. I just wanted to ask you about Korea. Let's talk a little bit to close about... Like, I hate this question, but I, I think our listeners are going to be interested in. I got ten days to visit Japan. Oh yeah, I got ten days to visit Japan, Craig. And like, I don't necessarily want to stay in Tokyo. Maybe I've been there, or like, I want to not be in a city. Where am I going? Get out! Get out of Tokyo! Don't Where go to Kyoto! Going? Don't go to Kyoto! Don't um, go to Kyoto! Yeah, no. that's 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 definitely advice I'd give. No, so um, well, let's see here. Where should you go? You should go to um, Kanazawa. Kanazawa is one of my favorite cities mm. in in Japan, and uh, I, I tell people to go. And the Shinkansen just opened, I think it was like ten years ago. There was no direct Tokyo Kanazawa Shinkansen line, and um, it's wonderful. It's just like it's such a walkable city. It's a beautiful city. Um, the food is fantastic up there. You're getting all the Sea of Japan catches. Um, historically, it's it's fascinating. the The castle is really well. You know, it's not original. None of the castles, most of the castles aren't original, but it's a beautiful castle. The park around it's phenomenal. Uh, great coffee, great kisa. The energy of the city is just, it's just a really good, really good energy. There's an old sort of tea house district. So you have kind of yeah. the geisha element of it. Um, it's a spectacular city. I love it. I love it to bits. And then on kind of the other end, you could go down to Kagoshima at the, at the southern tip of uh, Kyushu. 
And that's surreal. Mm. Kagoshima is surreal because there's this, there's, you know, Sakurajima is the island that you can see from pretty much everywhere in Kagoshima. And it's got a, a smoking volcano on it. Yeah. You, you know? wrote about that in your last walk. Just smoking. Yeah. It's just, just... <laughs> they're smoking. It's like you wake up and it's like oh, throughout the day, the smoke is changing, more wow. or less smoke. I mean, it's just wild. Are there eruptions like that yeah. damage the town and stuff like yes, that? Yes. Like, wow. Totally. I mean, not wow. not that it really damaged Kagoshima, but the island people live on. And kids go to school with, like, helmets on and stuff because of potential. That you wrote about. I remember that now. Wow. That's walking around with a helmet because of a live volcano, not your everyday commute. It's so, it's so surreal, you know. And so I, I love these sort of mid-tier, neither here nor there cities. So, yeah. like, Yamaguchi City also to me, just a wonderful gem of a place in Japan. Like, uh, I wrote about that last year, too, and to, it was it was such a shock. I had never spent time there before, really. I'd been for, like, an afternoon. Beautiful layout, walkable, but everyone was so kind. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, because it isn't a tourist spot. It's the, it's like the, um, uh, the, the prefectural hall is there. So it's sort of like a, uh, a bureaucratic center. So it's active, but it's not active for tourism. And so everyone was really quick mm. to just embrace it. It has this beautiful shopping street, covered shopping street, huge covered shopping street. And everyone was so friendly so quickly. And I felt, unlike any other place I've visited in Japan, welcome. In a, so Kanazawa, Yamaguchi, yep. and what's the th- other? Kagoshima. Kagoshima. Yep. You can head north also to this amazing gem of a town called Morioka. And I also, you know, ran into that on my 10-city tour last year. And Morioka is wild. It bats so above its average. Like, it's just so, again, walkable, beautiful. You know, if you have three days, you can see it all. But also, historically, with in terms of, like, kisa culture and jazz culture, you know, this wow. one of the oldest jazz kisas in Japan, you know, up on the, you know, Top floor of this building, wild, wild guy running it. Who's in his? I guess his eighties. I, I, you sort, find the old guys, ageless. Craig. You find the old guys who have stories or who are just like expressive. Yeah, old guy. Yeah, old, <laughs> old men love me. I they just do. Can't, I can't uh, deny it. They're into me. Um, but no, it's and and coffee culture in in Morioka is is incredible third wave coffee culture. Yeah, there's. Uh, I think it's that's called, right. You wrote about this. Yep. I think Nagisawa is what the coffee uh, place is called. He's considered like an old master of in Japan of third wave coffee. He imported a, uh, an, uh, an antique roaster, like German roaster machine. And he is known through oh, like a probot or something. Like exactly. That? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. A probot. He, yeah. he imported a probot and he's known all throughout Japan as like the like coffee, like senpai sensei of, of Japan. So it's getting better. Good. Coffee is pretty pretty rad in, in Japan. Like it's so good. It's definitely an increase in Japan. Craig, we asked all guests on the Taste Podcast <laughs> if there was a dream food book or cookbook project that you could work on without the burden of time, without the burden of budget. What would that be? I'm doing it. I know. I'm I know, doing it. I know. I know. You get to. You are self. You are self funded, and you have no deadline. Right. <laughs> I have lots of deadlines, but the, I make them up. Uh, uh, okay, or, or, <laughs> it's a tough question for you to answer. We we ask all of our guests that question. So let me rephrase it. So with special projects, which we can support you by subscribing to a yearly membership or a monthly membership, similar to a Substack. Yep. And this f- supports your work. 
what then is the next kind of couple projects you are working on with special projects? Yeah, no, I have uh, my next book that is about in, uh, a walk on the Key Peninsula. Yeah. But also is there's a memoir element to it as well about where I came from and reflecting sort of um, thinking back on that childhood through this peninsula. So that's coming up. Um, I want to do another 10 cities. So I'll have 20 cities and then pair that down to 10 cities and then oh, do a book out of that. Smart. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So I want to double the cities. I had so much fun last year doing that and everyone really enjoyed it. I want to do 10 more, pare it down. Um, and then the, the Tokyo walk last month was so generative and kind of rich. I want to do maybe two or three more of those and then pare that down. You know, it's, I think the, the trick with doing books is you just want to kind of over you know, overgenerate and then yeah. be really r- rigorous about paring stuff down. So, and then I want to do a, to- a Tokaido book. You know, I've walked Tokaido once. I want to do it again. And I want to kind of do a book that's in conversation with some of the uh, woodblock prints mm-hmm. uh, from the past, but in a way that it w- might be unexpected. So I have four or five more books that I just I can't wait to, to read to the key book. I, I remember following your, your walk, which I think was in the spring of 21. Is that right? Exactly. Yep. And that that was more rural. Like, I think the other two have been quite urban, and yeah. that was a pretty rural walk. So. Exactly. Craig Maud, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. This is great. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.